This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're going to begin today where we left off last week with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, and let's read it together. It says this, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. How many are thankful for that today? You've not come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord God, as we prepare to close out this series, Lord, that you would solidify in us the seeds that have been planted over these last 18 to 20 weeks. God, we thank you for the invitation to come and to fix our eyes on Jesus and to approach your throne with confidence and to be a people of faith that don't shrink back, but that press forward. And Lord God, we thank you for the blood that speaks a better word over our lives. We thank you for this new and better covenant that you've given us because of what Jesus did for us. And today, Lord God, the invitation to come to both earthly and heavenly Mount Zion to find you there in this place where thousands upon thousands of angels rejoice in festal gathering, where those whose names have already been written in heaven are already gathered around your throne, the witnesses that have come before us whose shoulders upon which we stand. And God, I just pray that in the next few moments as we dig into the text and as we open up your word, that you would speak to us through it in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said amen. Amen. The title of my message today is Welcome to Zion. Welcome to Zion. For those of you that were here last week, you know that I just got back from Israel. I spent 10 days there a couple weeks ago, and we were shooting a music video for a song that I wrote and recorded, which was amazing, and I'm excited to share that with you in just a few weeks. But we were there on location in Jerusalem, in the old city of David, at Mount Zion. And today I want to talk to you about both the earthly and the heavenly Zion. Say Zion. No, I'm not talking about the National Park here in Utah. I'm not talking about your local favorite bank. I'm talking about the city that God loves, what he calls his favorite dwelling place in the earth. Amen? So to begin, we're going to begin where Scripture begins with a rather unusual story about two earthly mountains and why I believe they matter to God. First and foremost, when you think about mountains, what comes to mind? Uh, for me, obviously outside of these beautiful mountains that we are surrounded by here in northern Utah, my mind races to the Grand Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Anyone ever been there before? Anyone ever had the pleasure of hiking the Tetons? Not many of us. But aren't they massive and beautiful and amazing? I mean, there's a reason why millions upon millions of tourists come every year 
not just to get eaten by the grizzly bears because they got too close, but to actually take pictures in front of these massive, majestic mountains. What about the French Alps? Anyone ever skied there or been there? What a dream, right? Yeah, some of you. I saw a couple of yeses in the, the crowd today. All right, I want to be your friend. Let's go. The French Alps are amazing. They are gorgeous. They are incredible. What about Mount Everest? Anyone ever been there? No, none of us have been to Mount Everest. One of the biggest mountains in the world. I think, what, the tallest mountain in the world still? Let's face it. There's something transcendently majestic and beautiful about mountains. In the Bible, Mountains are geographic and symbolic pictures of strength, of power, of authority, and yes, even spiritual influence. Mountains are often personified as places of refuge or what we might call strongholds. Anybody seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? You guys remember that second film, The Two Towers? I told you guys a couple weeks ago, I'm a little bit of a Tolkien nerd, but anybody seen that second movie, The Two Towers, where they have taken up refuge in the mountain stronghold of Helm's Deep, and they are fortified against these oncoming warring invaders that are coming to destroy them. And there's a reason why, historically speaking, mountains possess strength for strongholds, because you have a fortified position and you have this advantage, both tactically and strategically, and you're, you're fortified by the mountains that surround. Mountains are important not just to those in the Bible, but to God, because they also represent earthly places that he's chosen to manifest divine power and presence. Say it with me, power, power. and presence. Power and presence. When God first delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of their bondage to Pharaoh, he brought them to a mountain. And that mountain was called Mount Horeb, or as it's more commonly known today, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was the location where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. You guys familiar with this mountain? It's also where God made a very specific covenant with the people. We've talked a lot over these last few weeks about different covenants that God makes with specific people, and he made a covenant with Moses and the people. It's often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, and he did so at Mount Horeb. He did so at Mount Sinai. It was also the place from where God told the people to set out in their journey toward Canaan, which is the promised land. But I want us to get a picture of what this mountain represents. And to do so, I want us to turn to Exodus chapter 19 for just a moment before we return to the book of Hebrews. Exodus 19 verses 16 through 23 in the NIV paints a very vivid picture of Mount Sinai for us. And here's what it says. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. It was very, very frightening. I added that one for free. You're welcome. And there was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended upon it with fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Then the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and have many of them perish. 
Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And so the picture that the scriptures give us of this mountain is this terrifying, trembling, holy place where God's presence would descend in fire and in cloud and with smoke and with trumpet blast. Now, if that were to happen today, all of us would be laid waste. Can we agree on that point? Yes. And the people were commanded not to approach because it was so holy. The presence of God was so holy that it would overtake them. It would overwhelm their humanity. It would consume their simple mortal flesh. This is what Mount Sinai represents. And this is the mountain that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to in verses 18 through 21. Let's read it again. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches it, it must be stoned to death. And the sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So this is the reality of Sinai. And I want it to be marked in your mind today. Sinai, as we've just seen, is a, a place of holy terror. And it's a place burning with the fiery darkness, violent smoke of God. It, 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 it's no joke. And my concern for some of us today in the church is that we approach God so casually. You guys remember the Jesus is my homeboy movement? For those of you that have maybe been in the church for a while, I remember those t-shirts, everybody were, were repping those shirts for a while, this whole kind of casual, Jesus is my pal, Jesus is my buddy, me and God are tight, we're cool, it's all good, I have a friend in God, I am a friend of God. And I love that the heart behind it was to remove barriers between us and God. But the byproduct of what took place was that people begin to treat God casually. They begin to treat the gathering of the saints casually. We begin to come in with our Starbucks and our kind of like just casual attitude toward the gathering, toward the approaching of God and his presence. Over the last 23 years, we've seen a seeker-sensitive movement redefine what church is supposed to be. And I'm not here to knock it today because I'm thankful for many of the good things that came out of it. But the thing that I think we've gotten off track with is that we've made our time and our gathering far too casual because we've lost sight of the fact that we serve a God whom at any point could descend with fire and smoke and trembling. He's holy. And so much of this series, we've, we've tried to recapture that. We've tried to help you understand that what we're doing here this morning is holy. And not just holy in a religious way, but holy in a set-apart way, a distinct way. My conviction as a pastor is that we owe the world a holy encounter with a holy God. Not just three points and self-help and a nice little happy environment, but something that is distinctly other than what people have experienced in the world. And as a, as a church, as a courageous people, that's what we endeavor to do each and every week. For many years, Sinai would serve as a reminder that God is holy, that his presence is holy, and that he's called them as a people in their identity and who they are to be holy. But something else 
something very interesting to me would also take place here at Sinai. Over time, it would serve as a symbolic reminder of not just God's terrifying power and presence, but also his betrothal to the people to be their bridegroom and they the bride. Sinai essentially becomes the beginning of an engagement promise from God to wed himself to the people and to their land. Say it with me, to the people and to their land. This marriage promise is later highlighted in places all throughout the scriptures, but let's just read one together. Isaiah chapter 62, verses three through five says this, and you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed, you, you got me too fast there, shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land shall be married to the Lord for the Lord delights in you and he delights in your land and it shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. When God came down on Mount Sinai, he essentially said, this is my heart for you, that I would be your God and you would be my people, that I as a bridegroom would rejoice over you like a bride. And he makes this betrothal, this, this engagement promise to them and says, here's my promise to you, now here's how I want you to live. Here's my promise to you and here's how I want you to to live. As we've been talking about throughout the series, God is a God of covenant, meaning he's a promise-keeping, faithful God. And this is important because of what comes next at Mount Sinai. And that is the issuance of the Torah, the giving of the law itself. This was basically the terms of the marriage agreement. In ancient times, when two parties would come together to marry off their son or their daughter, there would be an exchange of terms or stipulations regarding the covenant that they were making. And these terms would be considered lawful and binding. Each party would come together and they would essentially make promises. Uh, then they would seal these promises with an exchange of vows and gifts or sometimes even sacrifices to bind them together as lawful and binding. And we see this today with, with most modern weddings today. There's typically vows that are made and then there's rings that are exchanged and then a marriage contract is then signed typically down at the courthouse or in a back room with a pastor somewhere. And it's ultimately this portrayal of covenant, of, of two people bringing their lives together. This is what we see at Sinai. God says, here's my commitment I make to you. Here's the vow that I make with you, O Israel, my holy bride, my people. And here's how I want you to live. Now, before we get too far ahead in the story that I'm telling today, Every one of us who's ever lived on this earth knows that there's not one single person but Jesus who could perfectly keep the law and do so in every way. Jesus not only fulfills the law itself in that he lives this perfect sinless life, but he actually becomes the gift that is given 
The sacrifice itself that binds us to a better covenant through his own body and blood. His, his marriage vow to us is essentially that we are now grafted into this thing he calls Israel and that he would never leave us or forsake us, but in doing so, he would send his Holy Spirit to us as a mark and as a guarantee of the promise he made. The Holy Spirit is the seal upon our hearts. He's the ring upon his people's finger that guarantees that what Jesus has said he will do, he will do. And in all the ways that those things haven't yet been fulfilled in our lives, they are coming and they will be in the days ahead. And Ephesians chapter one, I think paints it beautifully for us, marvelously for us. Verse 13 says, and you Gentiles also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law in every way and becomes the gift and the sacrifice and makes this vow that he would be with us even to the end of the age, that though we might have trouble in this world to be of good cheer, to be of good heart because he has overcome the world and then he sends his Holy Spirit to mark us and to seal us for the day of redemption that's coming. It's a beautiful reality that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But he also does something else. He prepares a way for us to come into a living relationship with God now, whereby we can be with him where he is. And where is he? What did Jesus say to all those who would put their hope and follow him? John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be as well. What place was he referring to? Certainly not Mount Sinai a place of fear and trembling, a place of judgment and warning, a place of condemnation. No, he was speaking about Mount Zion, a place of festal rejoicing and delight. Once again, what he calls his favorite dwelling place in the earth. And I want you guys to notice the contrast that we see here. Again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and verses 22 through 24 says this, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, before I unpack the significance of this, and the significance of Zion, what the writer here refers to as a heavenly Jerusalem, I want us to briefly look at its earthly counterpart and why it's so significant as a contrast to Mount Sinai in the scriptures. How are we doing? We doing all right? I know a lot more teaching today, but I want you guys to capture this. By the time Israel enters the land of Canaan, they've left Sinai, they've left the, the wilderness, they've, they've ceased to wander, they, they enter into the promised land, Moses dies, Joshua leads the people across the Jordan, you guys know it. After they've done that, there's this brief period where God begins to rule the people through judges and through prophets that he raises up as representatives and as leaders in the land. And over this course of time, Israel began to look at other nations and other tribes and other peoples, and they began to long to be ruled with a king like all these other people groups were. And so they began to ask God for a king. And God said, hey, I want to be your king. I want to be the one that leads you and guides you and rules you. But they said, yeah, but 
nations won't take us seriously unless we have an earthly king that can lead us and guide us and rule us. And so God begrudgingly gives them what they want. He turns them over to their own desires and self, which he typically does. And he gives them a king in the, in the name, in the man of Saul, in the person of Saul. And Saul was a, an, an earthly king. He was a man of the people. He wasn't the person that God wanted to rule them. In fact, God wanted to rule them himself. But he gives them this king named Saul. And as you guys know, things don't go too well for Saul. But along comes this little shepherd boy named David. You guys have heard of David? Yes. And David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man who loves the presence of God. And God anoints him to rule and represent him to the people. And David, although he wasn't perfect, he had this heart that, that longed for the one thing, that longed to spend his days in the presence of God, that longed for the people to know the presence of God. And he wrote the majority of the Psalms that we now possess in our Bibles. And here's what he expressed about the presence of God. He expressed this unique desire for it to remain in Jerusalem, in the place where he was. Now, this place became known as Mount Zion. It was the earthly place where God's presence would dwell, but it was first a Jebusite stronghold, and then David captured it. David and his mighty men captured it. Later on, they bring the Ark of the Presence, the Ark of the Covenant, back into the city and begin to rule from that place, hence why it becomes known as the City of David. It becomes known as the City of David. Now, I told you guys a couple weeks ago I was there. I was in the old City of David. I actually got to go up on the walls, on the ramparts. I was walking along the tower. It was really cool. I can't wait to show you guys what we filmed there. But there's something about Zion that God really loves. That God really loves. I, I want you to hear what the scriptures say about it so that you don't just take my word. But here's what God says about it. Psalm 87, verse two. It says this, let's throw it up there. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all of the other dwelling places of Jacob. And in just a few weeks, we'll show you some of this as well. Psalm 125, verses one through two. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Psalm 132, verse 13 through 14, our last one. For the Lord has chosen Zion, for he has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. You guys notice all the forever language of God about Zion? It's pretty remarkable, right? This forever language that God uses. Now, is the psalmist exaggerating? Is God exaggerating his love for Zion? By no means. When God says he loves something or someone, he means it. Amen? How are thankful that God, when he says he loves you and he loves me, that he means it. So if God says he loves something and he wants to dwell there forever, he's not just being hyperbolic. He's meaning what he says, which begs the question, how then will God dwell in Zion forever? Ever. I'm glad you asked, Pastor Jason. Well, we know from scriptures that God makes a covenant, another covenant with David to have someone from his lineage forever remain upon the throne there in Zion. This becomes known as the Davidic covenant and it foreshadows the second coming of Jesus. Luke chapter one, verse 32 through 33 says it this way, speaking of Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever 
and his kingdom will have no end. You guys, when Jesus returns, without getting into all the juicy details today and for the sake of time, he will literally reign over the house of Jacob from the throne of his earthly father, David, forever. He will establish his eternal reign, not just over the heavens where he is currently seated at the right hand of the father, but physically over the entire earth. And he'll do so from, you guessed it, Mount Zion. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, we know there's a coming a time where this is gonna take place. We don't know when, we don't know the hour, we don't know how it's all gonna work out, but we know that it's happening soon. Isaiah chapter two, verse two through four, highlights this reality for us. In the last days, Isaiah says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all the mountains. Here, here we are with all this mountain language again. And it will be exalted above the hills and the nations will stream into it, praise God. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Amen. You might say, well, Pastor Jason, that's Old Testament. You, you want to know why I personally believe this has not happened yet? It's a real simple reason. Because nation is still rising up against nation. Because there's still war in the earth. Because nations have not put down their swords yet or turned their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a, an example or an illustration of the fact that peace has not yet come upon the earth. But we know that there is coming a day where this will take place. And we know what that day will look like. Just fast forwarding ahead a little bit in the story, Revelation chapter 21, verse two through three speaks about it. It says this in verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? Bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man and he will dwell with them and they will be what? His people and he will be their God. Amen? And God himself will be with them. I love this. Where have we heard this wedding language, this betrothal language, this language of promise before? Oh, that's right, Pastor Jason, Isaiah 62. Let's read it again. Verse five, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 11, and behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And here's what he says. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes and behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out a city not forsaken. Welcome to Zion, friends. A city not forsaken, a city that God loves, his favorite dwelling place in the earth. And not just the earth, but in the heavens. Because as we know throughout this book, all of these things that we've been learning about from the Old Testament, the covenants, 
the traditions, the things that they speak to, the prophecies, all are a type and shadow of a more glorious heavenly reality that is coming to earth as a bridegroom comes for his bride, where the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion will be poured out upon the earth and the two will come together in holy matrimony or what we call the consummation of the age. It's a beautiful reality that we as the people of God get to look forward to. Some of you guys, I just blew your mind and that's all right. (laughs) But here's what I wanna say about it and why I think it matters for us today and for what we're doing here today. Every time we come together to worship in this church, this is what we're coming to. We're coming to angels upon angels in joyful assembly gathered around the throne of God. We're coming to the church global, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in his book of life, in heaven itself. We're coming to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We're coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new and more better covenant whose blood speaks a better word over our lives. What we're doing here today isn't just about a few songs and a, and a careful message. No, what we're doing here today is holy. It's eternal. It's bigger than what we think it is. That's why I'm encouraged. You know, pastors get so sidetracked on numbers and how big their church is or isn't. And I'm like, hey, we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves, you guys. We've got something to rejoice in today. Amen. But this is why it matters, not just that we come together, but how we come together. We're not here for entertainment. We're not here to wow you. We're here because of what God has ordained and done for his holy bride, his people. And you and I get to be a part of that. You and I are invited into that reality today, which is also why we don't get to pick and choose the terms of our involvement The truth is God already did that. So if you really want to be a part of this church, you got to know something. This is not about you or me. It's bigger than us. Hear my heart. Don't misunderstand me. I I hope you enjoy the music. I hope you enjoy the preaching. I hope you enjoy our ministries and community groups and philanthropy and outreach and all the things that we put our blood, sweat, and tears into. I really do. But this is about a king and a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. And we are here to advance his rule in the earth. We are here to declare his good news. We are like those who Jesus said, go out and tell those in the highways and the byways that the king is throwing a great feast at the end of the age. So come now so that his house can be filled. Come now and be a part of what he's doing in the earth. Because you can't wait. It's gonna be too late if you do. For anybody watching or listening to this message online, or for any of you here maybe skeptical about what I've just said, I want you to hear the Lord's warning to us. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up with verse 25, says this, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? God has warned us there's coming a day where he will make all things new, but he will judge and his judgment will be true. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that has created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, here's what he wants from us. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and let us worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. Courageous church with reverence and with awe. Am I against the lasers and the hazers and the screens? And the, by no means. By no means. But they can't compare to the presence of a holy God. What does he go on to say? For our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire, church. You want to know what this pastor longs for? He longs for the fire of God to fall on our worship. He might say, well, Pastor Jason, isn't the, the context of this scripture about the judgment of God and the fires of wrath to come? Yes, it is. But can I tell you something? When you and I come together as the Holy Church, as his bride and purpose in our hearts, that we're going to worship him with holy reverence and awe, we'll experience not the fire of his wrath to come, but the fires of his Holy Spirit. John the baptizer said this about Jesus. He said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is so much mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, and with fire. In two weeks' time, we're going to be kicking off a new series here at Courageous Church called Wind and Fire. And we're going to be talking about acts of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And I'm really excited about it because I believe God's going to really shift some things for us as a church here in Salt Lake City. And I want to encourage you to come out and be a part of that. In the meantime, and to drive all of this home today, what's God been trying to say to us and why does it matter? He's been saying to us that he's forever wed himself to a land and a people that he loves. A simple love story that once started in a garden will one day culminate in a glorious city, a city not forsaken, the city of the living God, Mount Zion itself. And why does it matter? It matters because Jesus laid down his life for you and I to experience it, to be a part of it, to not be left out in the cold, but to come in and experience every good thing that he wants and has for our lives. It matters because he actually wants us there with him. And not just us, courageous church, but those who have yet to hear, who have yet to know, who have yet to taste and see that the Lord is good, that we would go out and let them know and invite them so that they can be there too. For those of you here today or watching this or listening to this online who've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, your response is to not wait until the day that he comes with judgment. Your response is to do so now, to come to him now. Because that's always what he's wanted to remove the gap or the distance between us and him, to not keep us at a distance for fear of what might happen if we touch that holy mountain, but to be brought in so that we could rejoice with him on Mount Zion, his favorite dwelling place, his heavenly dwelling place, where angels upon angels are now singing and rejoicing around the throne, where a cloud of witnesses and the elders and the saints before us and the blood of the martyrs is crying out, worthy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is he. And God wants us to, to join in that song. He wants us to come into his story that he's inviting every single one of us to be a part of today. And so I don't know where some of you are at today. Maybe this message was like 
drinking from a fire hose. (laughs) Or maybe you've got questions and that's all right. But regardless of where you're at, God wants you to know that he loves you. He died for you. He gave his blood for you. He wants you to know his presence. He wants you to come close. He wants you to know this reality we call Zion. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.